0: Hello and welcome to episode 22 of For Art's Sake in our history and museum podcast. I'm your host Rhea. So I want to start the podcast with a sort of corrections corner. It's more like a, an additional corner, if you will. I mentioned last week that I couldn't find a lot of information on Devin Allen before uh, 2015 when his Baltimore uprising photo went viral, but I completely looked over a WYPR interview he did. Um, WYPR is the Baltimore local NPR station. I just wanted to add that Alan was 26 years old at the time he took those photos. And at the time he was doing photography, basically whenever he could in his free time. His job at the time, um, he worked with autistic people from midnight to 8 a.m. This program was the Monday Morning with Sheila Cass program on WYPR, which is archived. So if you like to listen, I highly recommend it and you can listen to it on WYPR's page secondly i want to address what is currently happening in the south right now um, i have talked about this personally on my instagram with my friends and my fiance and also on facebook um, what is happening right now is a direct result of climate change and government gross mismanagement um, in fact it's more than mismanagement frankly because that implies that oops maybe somebody was like a little bit bad at their job or made a mistake because they overlooked something or messed up the math. Uh, and of course i'm specifically referring to texas in this instance who is facing the worst of it because of the purposeful actions that the local and government local and state government has taken over and over again which has led to these rolling blackouts and people not having power and not having access to food etc um So this part of the podcast, this message is specifically to those bleeding heart, deep blue liberals who may be laughing at the deep South and saying that they deserve this. You are a part of the problem and you are no better than the QAnon Trumpers because you are eating up propaganda, frankly. Um, Instead of directly blaming those in power, um, you choose to place it solely on the people whose lives in those areas are at the most risk. Um, That's what they want you to do. So congrats. The reality is that there is immense voter suppression, poverty, gerrymandering, etc. that makes it really difficult for marginalized people to vote, organize, and frankly, get shit done. And they still do the best that they can. But there's so much standing in the way. And yes, there are bad racist folks who live in those areas, but maybe you could just forget about those people and spare some empathy for their neighbors who are disabled, black, queer, trans, immigrants, elderly, etc., who do not deserve to die because you hate Trump and Ted Cruz and actually won't do anything uh, real about it. A lot of the rhetoric I've seen is really grossly classist and not to mention ableist and racist ultimately because of the deeper issues that you f- reviews to, to understand because you wanted to get back to brunch so badly after posting your little black square of the summer. As always, with the pandemic, with poverty, with the issues of our military, education, prisons, drugs, literally anything in this country, it will always, always, overwhelmingly, disproportionately hit marginalized people harder. In 2017, my parents lost their electricity and have never had it turned back on. They have lived with a generator for about two years now. I have lived through winter without power, and it's awful. It's hard and painful, and it makes you exhausted. It's hard to figure things out. It's hard to do homework. It's hard to work. It's hard to clean. It's hard to clean yourself. It's hard to function. It's hard to live without power, especially when you have other things working against you. And I often struggle to talk about this. I'm getting better at it, but frankly, I sometimes feel embarrassed about it for some reason. And people can be really cruel to me and my family. And I live in a blue state, a very expensive blue state, with a deep issue with poverty, which has unfortunately blossomed into violence, the opioid epidemic, and homelessness in basically every county. So to see liberals who supposedly hate Trump and what he stands for turn a blind eye, and not even just a blind eye, they know what's going on, but they just are awful, Um, turn a blind eye to what is really happening how purposeful actions have led to people suffering and have instead blanketed texas and the south as all bad as they always have done um it's just it's unsurprising but it's still not aggravating like this is (laughs) i'm literally begging you to have some basic human empathy And if you have an issue with this as a listener, then my podcast is not for you because I am not for you and you are not going to enjoy the things I say. And I don't know how you got this far, but maybe you just listened to the most recent episode. The South continually bleeds for the rest of the country. They always have. Black folks have literally laid their lives down for their communities, which has ultimately helped the rest of the country. They have done this forever. Forever and I, I don't have anything else to say because I just can't get it to make sense that marginalized people, Hey, they live everywhere and you have to care about them. If you're going to talk the talk, you have to walk the walk. You know, I don't know how to continually argue that you need to have empathy for people. Um, so I'm going to end it here. My little spiel. Um, and instead say, if you are able to, there is a variety of mutual aid actions that you can take. Money right now is one of the best things. Um, it is usually the best thing because unfortunately that's just the way that we live. Um, but right now, especially it's nearly impossible to have things shipped to people because of the weather conditions. Like just mail is not the best right now. Um, but here are some options I put together. The net, Fort worth of uh, the net FW is a nonprofit that serves homeless people, refugees, and survivors of trafficking. They're asking for financial aid to offset the cost of motel rooms for people escaping the cold. Um, visit the netfw.com slash donate to help. If you live in Texas, you can dial 211 to your nearest to find your nearest warming center. Donate funds for, you can donate funds for bail or commissions for inmates or uh, commissary for inmates. Because, um, well, basically, as always, they're getting hit hard. Um, it's really bad for those who are currently incarcerated throughout Texas. Um, and you can donate to the Texas Jail Project, for example. Um, there is Feed the People Dallas. You can donate to, on, through their website or through Venmo, which is at Feed the People Dallas. There's Mutual Aid Houston, which you can give through their website, or Venmo, which is at Mutual Aid H-O-U. There's Austin Mutual Aid, which is using GoFundMe or Venmo at Austin Mutual Aid Hotels. There's, excuse me for this, Para Me Gent Mutual Aid, which is, sorry, um, they're using Venmo, which is at PMG Mutual Aid. You can also check out Instagrams with large followings um, for posts asking folks to share their Venmo and Cash App info. One such example is Ashley Chubby Bunny, which is A S H l-e-i-g-h chubby c-h-u-b-b-y bunny b-u-n-n-y um giving money to people directly allows them to get food which is often much more expensive in moments like this um because frankly people have to often get their food they're getting their food from like convenience stores because grocery stores are either too far away and hard to get to because of the condition of the roads um or they're completely empty for a variety of reasons. People buying all the food, but also because of rolling um, power outages, um, coolers, stuff like that have been out. People, they've had to throw away food, et cetera. And of course they can't necessarily get food back in. If you look at the posts um, that specifically talks about Texas, there's like a graphic that is um, one post in particular that has people in Texas and other Southern states like Georgia and Mississippi who need some help Um, this money will help them afford food that's more expensive, possibly allow them to buy supplies if there's any available, but also to afford motel and hotel rooms. This is a real emergency. This is not a joke. You need to take this seriously. And if you are able to help whatsoever, please do. Open those wallets if you have the funds. Thank you. For this week's episode, I wanted to do something love related. And I thought kind of long and hard how I was going to approach this if I was going to approach this and like what to do. And then I saw this really wholesome meme celebrating a work of art by one of my favorite artists, Felix Gonzalez Torres. And I thought that many of his works fit this theme, if you will, of like Valentine's Day and love. Um, It's one of my favorite holidays. Because I love love, and there's so many different types of love. And when you even explore something like romantic love alone, it's much deeper than we really think. Gonzalez Torres has created some of the most beautiful works of art I have ever seen or experienced. And some of those works focus on the pain of love, the hurt that love or the absence of it can cause, and the responsibility and consequences that are associated with love. So today, I want to take a little journey through his life and some of his works. I'm going to give some factual details about his life, like what he studied and when. But to really learn about him, I feel like a lot of it is in his art. I think this will make sense eventually, like what I mean exactly. um, And we will get to that. So first, let's, let's talk about like kind of like the timeline of his life, if you will. Felix Gonzalez Torres was born on November 26, 1957 in Cuba. He lived with his sister for a short while as a child, um, and then he moved in an orphanage, and then, then he moved to Puerto Rico to live with family. He studied art at the University of Puerto Rico in San Juan before attending a fellowship in New York City in 1979. In 1980 and 1983, separately, he participated in a Whitney independent study program. His approach and style to his work started to really cement when he attended these programs and began to learn a lot more of art and critical theory. And he used his own life experiences and what he saw around him as an influence as well. In 1986, he traveled to Venice to study and make art. And the following year, he was awarded a master's degree in fine arts from New York University. That same year, he joined an art collective group called Group Material. And the focus of this group was community education and activism. He was an openly gay man, and he was actively making art and participating in different forms of activism during the AIDS crisis, which is a large part of his overall uh, portfolio, if you will, which I will get to and I will talk about. So he continued to receive many fellowships over the years, including one in Berlin and another by the National Endowment of the Arts in 1993. In 1995, there was the... Decision to not allow him to participate in the Venice Biennale because of his controversial status, which was over his openness about his sexuality, about the AIDS epidemic, about religion and gun violence. He passed away on January 9th, 1996 in Miami, Florida from complications from AIDS, and he was 38 years old. He was viewed as an incredibly talented and important artist while he was alive, of course, but his influence and meaning after his death is even more immeasurable, if that even makes any sense. He is one of the most influential artists to contemporary art, and frankly, his work is timeless, despite, you know, being like specifically important to contextualizing a certain moment in time and its side effects. In 2005, his art was finally chosen to represent the United States in the Venice Biennale, including unseen artwork. In 2002, the Felix Gonzalez-Torres Foundation was created, and I'll read the statement from the foundation directly. The Felix Gonzalez-Torres Foundation was established in 2002 by the estate of Felix Gonzalez-Torres. The foundation maintains, builds, and facilitates knowledge and understanding around the work of Gonzalez-Torres with a commitment to foster expansive thinking and to uphold Gonzalez-Torres' intention to maintain space for diverse and changing points of view and questioning around the work. The Foundation is the official body that fields ex- exhibition requests that include or respond to the work of Felix Gonzalez-Torres and offers guidance and ongoing support for such exhibitions. The Foundation is the sole licensor of copyright in and to all works by Felix Gonzalez-Torres. The Foundation is a resource that strives to be accessible to all individuals interested in learning about and contributing to gonzalez torress work. The foundation continues the process of the issuance and evolution of the certificates of authenticity and ownership for these works by Gonzalez-Torres that are accompanied by such certificates. The foundation helps to facilitate publication projects. The foundation also endows grant programs in gonzalez Torres's name through other institutions. The foundation strives to create a multi-pronged, robust archival approach, both within and outside the foundation, serving as both a respito- rep- repository and index of materials and resources related to González Torres. The foundation's expansive work and exhibition archives implement methodologies informed by the specific yet open-ended nature of González Torres's works itself. The foundation continues to develop and implement creative structures that foster and evolve expertise and leadership within the foundation and work of art of Felix Gonzalez Torres, including the Fellows Forum established in 2008 and the Thinker in Residence established in 2020. So I think there gives a little bit of like, um not really a foreshadowing, kind of a hint to... um a certain part of his artwork, which I'm going to, of course, to talk about a little bit. I'm going to talk about here in this section about um, some of the more conceptual different approaches of his artwork before really diving into the selected works that kind of fit this theme, if you will, of Valentine's Day in love um, and the complexities of love, of course i I think uh, maybe I'm not making sense, but I think I do. I think I make sense, hopefully. Let's talk a little bit about his approach to art. He used different types of everyday materials such as candles, light bulbs, different types of fabric, paper, candy, clocks, and beads to create minimalist sculptures that interpreted the t- interrupted sorry the typical flow of a museum when exhibited. Multiple works required the visitor's participation or touch. Because of this, he's considered a process artist or a participation artist, um, as the role of the items being organized, placed, collected, used, etc. became one of the principal roles of the work being exhibited. Gonzalez-Torres began to use a staple of minimalism, where he essentially signed a specific guide that would basically well guide the museum on how to exhibit his work properly this is what is called the certificate of authenticity authenticity which is mentioned by the foundation basically um, just briefly in minimalism artists began to create guides on how to put together the works um, that they created they designed um, and uh, if they would donate them or sell them to a museum or gallery or collector or whomever, Um, instead of giving the materials themselves like typically you would with a sculpture or painting these guides would say the exact materials that were required like for example plywood or zinc plate or a type of rock or something and it would also dictate the size shape how the items would be placed the distance between the items how they should be interacted with um also what should be done if they were to be damaged or to get old whatever so for example an artist like carl andre Um, Would have these instructions on zinc magnesium plane that would say, "Hey, you need these zinc magnesium plates of a certain size, and you need I don't know, ten of them, and you need to place them like this, and they have to be like one inch apart, and they're supposed to be walked on, and you should replace the plates if this thing happens." So Gonzalez Torres followed this, which makes a lot of sense because instead of use, but instead of using industrial materials like minimalists did before him, he used like softer, normal almost mundane everyday materials that made the works more relatable, workable, accessible not just in purchasing and placing the materials but to the visitor's interpretation. His use of these materials ha- makes his work while there is certain attention uh, intention and story behind works, it gives this open-endedness. That means that a visitor can look at it, think about this everyday item that they have definitely seen in their everyday life, and they can come to their own conclusions as to why the work was created and what it's supposed to represent. He also had a couple of series that did technically seemingly divert from his art style, that, um, like the installation style, but they still fit into his overall approach these billboards, um, oh, sorry, these included billboards, um, which were these monochrome photographs, a number he does have experience in photography. Um, they both blend and stand out. Um, they were these billboards that were put in New York city and they like blend into the urban landscape because, you know, they're billboards and, you know, you might just walk past them, but they also stand out because they're unusual. They're not being used for advertisements and they're not like informational in the traditional way. He also had a series called the Dateline series, which he used a photostat process. Um, think of it kind of like almost like a stamp or a print um, where it was white text on like a sh- black background and the process of putting it together within like the shadow box type of frame makes it very shiny so when a visitor looks at it and looks at these dates that were put together, they would have their own reflection. Um it was basically he would just take kind of a jumble of historic events that he would kind of loosely um connect. Sometimes I don't really understand what he's connecting. Whew, sorry if I sound weird. I just started coughing like I had the board tickle on my throat. Um oh my goodness. Where was I? Uh, so he took these events, um, historical events, stuff like patents, um, scientific discoveries, war, birth dates, the debut of MTV, stuff like that. And he would put it together. And like I said, I don't really necessarily understand the exa- like, like connection between some of these, but that was one of the things that he did. Um, and also he did a lot of photography, even though he's definitely known for his like installation work. Um, He was still doing photography a lot. And his approach to exhibiting, presenting his photography was to essentially print it to like a puzzle, a jigsaw puzzle, and have those pieces put together and framed, um, which is really interesting Um, and very, very unique. I actually haven't seen that in like a museum setting before. And finally, one of the overall characteristics... If you can take that word, um, of his work is all of his, almost all of his work is titled as, um, quote, untitled, unquote. And then what you may consider the actual, um, title of the work, which allows people to identify it more in parentheses after that. So basically be quote, untitled, unquote, parentheses, portrait of Ross in LA and parentheses. So untitled portrait of Ross in LA. And then I would say the date. That's how I'm going to say the work. Um, This was an intentional thing by the artist. So I think by now we have a basic understanding as to how he um, approaches his art, how he makes his art. So let's actually look at some of those works, shall we? Um, But right now I do want to stop and have a content warning here. Um, As I was writing this, I realized, wow, this episode is getting to be sad. Um, As I've already mentioned, he died from complications of AIDS, his partner died from complications of AIDS. I don't think I mentioned that. Um, but I am mentioning it now in 1991, his partner, Ross Laycock passed away from complications of AIDS. So a lot of his artwork that is more well known deals with his process of his partner dying, um, the loss of his partner. Um, with also the backdrop of the overall AIDS crisis. So he was already doing a lot of AIDS work and then it hit home to say the least. And it is sad. Not all of the work that I'm going to talk about is specifically about his partner's death, but, um, it can also be interpreted in that way multiple times. Um, like I said, a lot of his work is open-ended and you can have your own interpretations and I am going to offer other interpretations that aren't necessarily about death, but it is important to remember that he did specifically talk about his artwork as like when he was working on it, um, the fears and the memories and all that kind of stuff. Um, so while yes, you know, death of the author, death of the artist, interpretation is up to the person viewing it once the artist or author puts that work out there. That definitely exists, but we also have to remember that, hey, um, queer people, their experiences, their stories, um, like, matter. That context does matter, and we're not going to just ignore that. So I'm going to have both, but this is my (laughs) warning that this is not going to necessarily be happy. And the reason why I chose this as the Valentine's Day episode is because I wanted to show the different sides of love, the different stories of love. And I thought it was important to show queer love, even if that queer love unfortunately does end, if you will, with tragedy. Um, but it's still important. And I feel like his artwork because of the queer love, the personal story of it it's really important to share that there is this i am not going to say romance but there is this reality to it of how love truly is and how it feels when it's like actually healthy and um that can extend from more than just romantic love it can extend to your, your parents your friends your children um And that's why I did that. So this is my warning that it's not necessarily going to be the most happy. And if, you know, that's distressing for you, I do want to apologize. And yeah, we're going to get into it. So the first work i want to discuss is called untitled lover boy 1989. this work is an installation piece it is made up of two light blue curtains that are placed in front of windows that can either be open or close the curtains are light and gauzy and sheer the use of these curtains in the space of fine art inside an institution that either holds a reputation and or holds items of reputation in history seems really odd. And that's part of the point. Like I said, we're using everyday simple items as like a springboard, launching board or whatever it's called for our own personal interpretations. Curtains are simply things that exist. Um, They can be aesthetically pleasing, but ultimately they serve a simple purpose depending on where and when they are placed. And of course, when you place curtains Within a museum of all places, um, that means something different. So, typically, you know, museums, when they have curtains, it's to block out UV, it's to make sure that works aren't damaged. But placing these curtains as an art object gives different meaning and it interrupts that casual stroll that you'll have through the museum. Um, Like I said, there is a lot of room for interpretation, but with the addition of the title, Untitled lover boy, it does imply that there's something related to his partner specifically. Or if we are to follow the open endedness, it could be any lover boy, or really any moment that you could apply to loving a partner. The placement of these curtains is not the typical placement of curtains, like I said. Um, it is a very purposeful action with the background of knowing how museum and art is. Um, And frankly, it's there to remind us of fleeting moments, like light and movement, especially if the windows are open. Like, can you imagine just how pretty these curtains would look with a nice breeze? And having like a delicate breeze in the middle of an exhibit or gallery space is really weird, actually, because it simply just is not the place. So if we take that, you know, the context of a curtain, and we also apply the title "Lover Boy," it makes us... You know, it's trying to make us think about like kind of weird fleeting moments, little memories that may also be romantic. So looking at this work, I think about lazy weekend afternoons when the sky is blue and it's chilly but not cold and the sunshine is just warm enough that but you're not hot. You can wear a nice sweater. Probably it's October and it's 68 degrees out, you know, and there's this cool breeze and life feels really good for a moment. And then when I add, like, my partner into it, like, I just think about us kind of, like, hanging out and the windows open, it's breezy, you can hear the trees, and we're just existing with each other. And I think that's one of the things that Gonzalez torres was getting at. Next up is Untitled Perfect Lovers, 1991. So this is actually the artwork that was featured in the meme that I briefly mentioned earlier, which led me to making this episode for Valentine's Day, or the week of Valentine's Day. Um, I think it was something like, what if we kissed under Felix Gonzalez-Torres' Untitled Perfect Lovers 1991 blushing emoji. Um, (laughs) Anyway, this work features two simple clocks. It's those kind of clocks that um, are like that kind of They're a modern design, but they're kind of corporate now. Um, It's the type of clock you would see at school, you know, for example. Um, So these just aren't, the you know, the pretty antique clocks. They're not like super unique. You see them everywhere is what I'm trying to say. And looking at this work without really knowing anything, you could probably stand there and wonder why clocks. And that's perfectly okay. Why are they set the same? Like, why are they... You know, in sync, or why are they not in sync? What is this supposed to mean? And that can exist in itself. You know, this work could just exist as a reference to ready-mades. And of course, it allows us to explore possible interpretations, like maybe has something to do with the time passing in our mundane environments, like school or the office. But however, this work was created while his partner was dying. Referring to this work, he said, Gonzalez Torres said, quote, time is something that scares me or used to. This piece I made with the two, the two clocks was the scariest thing I have ever done. I wanted to face it. I wanted those two clocks right in front of me ticking. He set the arms of the clock to uh, stay in sync when there is the possibility of the clocks going out of sync. And that's an important role that supports the artwork. The two clocks start out on the same path, and then they become estranged in a way. And this can mean a lot of things, even beyond the very intimate and personal reality behind them. Of course it can mean death, but it also could simply mean a breakup or divorce, which can be good or bad. It can mean growing up and existing as two different people, but still being close. These clocks come with specific rules, of course. They can be reset at any time, but they have to be replaced if one or both of them stops. So it's an infinite work. It just keeps going, but it can keep going in sync or they can be out of sync. And not only do the clocks, you know, they can never stop ticking, but they also need to touch. And that's why some like one interpretation I have when I look at this is like friendships, you know, as you grow older, you can have these really strong friendships where You kind of go on different paths and you do different things and have different interests, but you still are connected and you can still come back to each other and have that friendship. Um, Which I think a lot of adults get. It also reminds me of like a healthy relationship is kind of existing together, not necessarily having your own life as in like a secret life, but having your own self, but still being connected to your partner. Of course, in this instance, he was basically creating this thing where the reality of one clock going out of sync matches up to the reality of he's going to lose his partner and he knows it and he's going to be out of sync with his partner his partner is going to you know, go on to this other part of life without him and he's going to keep going on. Next, I want to talk about three photographs. The first is "Untitled Lover Boy," 1989. This is an example of one of Gonzalez Torres's uh, Gonzalez Torres's is, is mm, one of his uh, ways to approach photography. Um, uh, the photograph is of his partner Ross laying on a bed, shirtless. You can see his hair, his eyebrows, his neck, his shoulder. But his face is blocked out by what looks like a cat that he's cuddling um this is a c-print jigsaw puzzle that was placed in a plastic bag and it's just really unique approach to photography and displaying your photography um but what's really kind of makes me sad but what's interesting about this photograph is the simplicity of it now we've already seen with the use of materials that simplicity is part of the point. Um, simple everyday materials allow us to have our own personal interpretations and allows for more accessibility to the artwork and the objects used. And while this use of simplicity here isn't exactly the same in that way, it kind of just fits the overall, um, if you could see themes within his work. Um, this simple image of two Lovers just existing and you know living together and doing things like this is just a normal photograph that any of us would take of our partner, right? Like I would see this on Instagram. Like I've probably, I'm definitely sure that I've taken photographs just like this of my fiance. But we have to consider the context of when it was taken, um, when it was printed, and when it would be exhibited. Um. The artist talks about a few times of his openness of his sexuality being a gay artist and his reluctance to label himself as a gay artist because of the, um, well, essentially the unfortunate consequences of being a gay artist. Because frankly, we have to remember that there were conservative people in power who were incredibly anti-gay. How do you think the AIDS epidemic was as bad as it was? But this extended to the art world. Um, One day I am going to talk about what happened to Robert Mapplethorpe um, and the violence, let's honestly, that the government showed when they basically forced museums to not want to have gay artists exhibited or to collect their art. Um it put gay artists in a really bad place. So having this sort of photograph and calling it lover boy really helps fuel the context. Like this was a time where it wasn't easy to be gay and to be a gay artist. Um, And that doesn't even have anything to do with necessarily the AIDS epidemic, but really just art funding and exhibition and having jobs and having commissions and, and clients. It is really unfortunate that queer history is filled with these moments where just existing and being normal, just like anybody else is a radical act. And finally, with this photograph, the use of the lover boy is really important because lover boy is used in other works like with the curtains. So it is important in our understanding of his representation of Ross. The second photograph is called Untitled Paris, 1989. Like before, this is a C print jigsaw puzzle in a plastic bag. Here we see what is most definitely a self-portrait and a portrait of his partner. Um, It's the shadow of the two of them on like some sort of road or field from a walkway above. You can see like trees and there's like the guardrail, which is also a shadow. And they're standing next to each other and they're standing pretty closely. And you can see that. Uh, Gonzalez Torres is like the one holding the camera most likely and like I said with the previous work this is just a normal kind of photo this is I know I've taken tons of photos like this everybody's probably taking photos of their shadow especially with a friend or a partner it's just something that you do and clearly this with being in Paris is like a photograph to remember a good time a special time and a special time with your partner and Again, we have that context that makes this everyday photo a radical act. And the final photo that I want to talk about is also a C print on Drake's wall. It's titled Untitled Paris for the Last Time 1989. So instead of people, we have people implied, which is something that also shows up in other works. Um, there are two like like lawn chairs against a wall. And one is slightly like sideways as if someone moved it a little bit while getting out. Um, because chairs are clearly items that are used by people every day and putting two next to each other means, you know, and it means that people are sitting closely. This implies that two people were sitting closely next to each other. Um, you know, again, that context I spoke about before with the title, however, it just adds a different dimension to this photograph. It's not just a normal photograph because we have the context of a gay couple, but knowing that Ross passes away and that Gonzalez Torres Um, uses his artwork to grieve and remember his partner. It feels a lot that he was looking back at this time um, and reflecting on that last trip together. And the empty chairs just reinforces that because it's the absence of people. Um, He uses this in a few other works like empty chairs, um, an empty bed, for example, obviously there's like this slight implied movement like the chair slightly sideways or like the empty bed like he did this with a billboard where it, you know it was messed up sheets somebody was there but they're not there anymore this ended up being a lot sadder than I really meant to because going into this I was really thinking about the dimensions of love and how important it is to show queer stories and when I think queer artists I automatically think of Felix Gonzalez-Torres and his work and oh boy, what have I gotten myself into? (sighs) Um, because now, um, now I'm going to talk about one of the artworks that, uh, sticks with me the most. Um, I don't consider it like a favorite artwork because favorite implies like, oh my God, it's it's like, like so happy or something like that. But, um, if we remove that part, it was a favorite artwork and, um, Oh, it's just, it's very sad, but it's a very beautiful um, work of art. And I think it's one of the greatest things ever created. It's also one of his um, probably most recognizable works of art. It's called Untitled Portrait of Ross in L.A., 1991. And it's an example of his candy work, um, which isn't the first candy piece, um, nor is it his last. But essentially, he uses these piles of candy as a form of portrait representing 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 somebody um so the candy is either piled and spilled out like it is with portrait of ross in la or it is carefully organized in this instance the combined weight of the candy um, ideally is supposed to be 175 pounds which was the last ideal weight of his partner before he um started having complications from hiv aids um visitors are encouraged to take a piece of candy from the pile and with this act of taking piece of candy it represents a decline in his weight and health and his eventual death especially as the candy pile is depleted and is gone the museum or gallery has to replenish the pile which they can supposedly do at any point it doesn't have to be totally gone and by doing so it grants eternal life to the allegorical representation of his partner so much like you know what we saw with the, the clocks, um, they have to be replaced, and so they go on forever. And that is the same case with this candy. The only time they don't go on forever is when the work is not on view. The use of candy is also really important, clearly. Um, it's a sweet but ephemeral thing. And we don't really think of that candy as like an ephemeral thing because we have access to it. But in this instance, it is short lived. You have this um, fleeting, happy moment of this tasty candy and then it's gone, but it's still like a little special moment. And I, I keep saying fleeting moments. And I think that fleeting moments, if you have to pick a theme of his work is definitely one of them. The way that this work and his other candy works are placed within the museum setting forces the visitor to notice um, because it's weird, frankly, it's abnormal. And these piles are often placed in even stranger areas like the middle of a walkway, you know, with plenty of signage, of course, or in an awkward corner or next to a staircase. So these piles are a reminder of the person or persons that they represent always there, whether you expect them or not. And you can't actually hide the reality of their lives. Because, frankly, when you're going to have a pile of candy in an art museum, you're going to know want to know why. And um, so when you visit this work, you know, you don't have to participate. But if you do, you you have to know why you're participating. And um, it seems weird. Like, should you take the piece of candy if it represents the eventual death of somebody? But I honestly think that you should because it's not just the death, it's his memory. The candy is never going to go away. It's never going to be the total end. The candy is going to be replaced. So by taking a piece of candy, you're just helping keep his memory alive. And I don't have any other interpretation other than that. So, And because I got really sad and realized that, wow, this podcast is kind of sad... Sorry, um, I decided that I want to end this by looking at an example of why of the way that Gonzalez Torres uses lights and light bulbs. So the way that he uses light later in his career brings me like some some joy. Um, frankly, the light is warm and inviting, and personally, it reminds me of birthdays and holidays. And I'm specifically going to look at a work called Untitled Love Meal 1992 because it is. Um, a work about him and his partner so it consists of a string of 42 lights the light bulbs are of course ephemeral as they will eventually dim and go out but they do get replaced and while they are lit they're pretty and warm and nice The directions for this artwork allow for different creative choices as to how the ribbon of bulbs will be displayed. And my favorite ways that museum have chosen is to place the lights in the middle of like a pathway, usually in an entrance or exit to a gallery space. Um, This basically invites the visitor to touch it, have to touch it, to move around the work. It's confrontational, and I think that confrontation can be a good thing. Um, Not only can you not avoid looking at this work because it's bright and inviting, but placing it in certain ways that interrupt your walk through an exhibit, make you look at it make you notice it and make you acknowledge it. He clearly wants us to remember his lover as well as, you know, in different works, the death of his father, um, gun violence in America, and of course, the AIDS epidemic and how gay people are treated now and within history memory, whether fleeting or long lasting, is incredibly important within his works. And I think that in every instance, he's really good at it. Um, So with this work, the light string starts from the ceiling, and then it ends on the floor in a tangled pile. And this is, of course, purposeful. But of course, the, the pile itself gets moved around a little bit, which is, you know, it shows the interaction of ourselves with artwork and with memory and everyday objects. Um, Personally, it reminds me of a timeline with the straight string of lights. And then with the entanglement, it represents closeness possibly, um, or simply it could just be a pile of lights on the floor. But either way, it's pretty. And I like these pretty lights that are so different from the rest of the museum. Uh, just like the candy, he uses length, number of bulbs, and how they're placed to represent someone, kind of like a portrait, which may not always be obvious, like the weight of somebody in candy, candy, but I think it, it does still work. Um, I actually find myself, you know, struggling to accept all of these displays as art, it takes some effort on my part to really try and understand what is being shown to me, and part of this effort, I looked online at people's stories of walking around museums like them talking about it on Instagram or Tumblr. And a lot of people were just walking around the museum, not necessarily there for a Felix Gonzalez exhibit or for his pieces that in the collection. And they just happened to see these light bulb installations and they made them feel nice. They didn't feel sad. They felt, you know, they almost had like this like joyful you know moment because of the illumination and the warmth people said it reminded them of outdoor markets and fairies and their childhood bedrooms and christmas time and candles and barbecues and gardens it's almost like the placement of these lights exists as a reminder of those memories and i really appreciate that Um, and i feel like i wouldn't have understood it as well Of course, if I didn't know about the artist, but if I didn't try and see other people's perspective, just because I don't maybe see something as strong or, you know, don't understand it doesn't mean that other people don't not understand it. And I should also be paying attention to how other people, how this artwork makes them feel because interpretation with his work is obviously incredibly important. So, um, I hope you enjoyed this episode, even though it was quite sad and I did get really emotional because, um, a lot of his work I actually left out because it did make me really emotional and, um, (sighs) but I couldn't not talk about Portrait of Ross. It is, you know, this incredibly important and also well-known work of art. Um, I hope that you understood my concept behind this. I wanted to talk about love but not necessarily the mainstream love that is associated with valentine's day um i also wanted to talk about marginalized people and romance there um and it just he comes to mind and i thought that his artwork and the way it makes people feel was a good theme of love and i feel like i'm trying to excuse myself probably i just don't want to make anybody too sad but sometimes sadness is a part of it So um, I think that Felix Gonzalez-Torres is one of the greatest artists that that has ever lived. Oh God, why am I so emotional? Um, And his artwork is some of the most important work ever created. And um, I know that a lot of queer stories end in tragedy, but I think because of the approach that he took to making these everyday ephemeral items like candy and paper and light bulbs. He made them and, you know, clocks, things that run out, things that are consumed, things that, you know, can be easily ruined or destroyed. He gives life to them because he tells the museums like, hey, this is how it's going to be done. And they do it because that is the artwork. And then they last forever. So in a way, it's not as sad because he's giving his partner like this eternal life and memory that otherwise he may not have had oh gosh i love art so much sometimes and i also think it's really cool because i love art that interrupts like museums and like the way that you walk through a museum and how you exhibit things and how you look at exhibits and um Obviously he does a really great job with that. So I'm gonna end this before I just can just sob on the podcast. Um goodness. Gonna just take a second to breathe. Let's all breathe. I don't know. I just get emotional with love. I'm a very savvy, romantic, sensitive person, clearly. Um <laughs> Please don't eat your chips, fiance. I'm almost done. Oh, okay. Anyway, let me end this so that my fiance can eat his very loud snacks. One time I was trying to sleep, and I'm just going to call. <laughs> One time I was trying to sleep, and I- he was woken up by him crunching away. Do you remember? Was I? Yeah, okay. So um, you can follow the podcast for updates on Facebook. Um, of course, if you just look up For Art's Sake Podcast, or For Art's Sake and our History Museum Podcast, you'll find the page. Um, I will post updates there, you know, like, hey, I'm struggling with brain fog. The episode's gonna be late. Um, you can also follow um, the podcast on Instagram, and on Instagram, I'm going to start. Um, so other podcasts, like My Favorite Murder, post like, hey, this episode, here's the title, and then we have some images. Um, obviously, images are important to what i'm talking about so i don't know why i didn't do this in the first place but i am going to be posting from now on um or try to like hey new podcasts and include some images um and the handle for that is for arts sake for for arts podcast so f-o-r-a-r-t-s podcast that's on instagram and as always you can email the podcast um for arts sake podcast at gmail.com that's f-o-r-a-r-t-s-s-a-k-e podcast at gmail.com um if you ever have any suggestions corrections or episode requests send them my way i don't mind so um i hope you're well hope you're healthy and safe and that you had a nice valentine's day and that um you know, good things happen to you, and I hope that um, if you live in one of the areas that is having an awful winter storm, I hope that um, you get some help. And again, if you're a type of person who's like, ah, there, that the South deserves it, um, we're not friends to say the least. So I'm gonna end this now. Um, this has been for Art Sake and Art History and Museum Podcast. My name is Ria, and I'm out of here. I'm going to go cry. Bye.